welcome. I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. For today's half biscuit, I was going to do a case, but instead I decided to do another mental disorder. Today we're going to talk about antisocial personality disorder. This particular disorder used to be called psychopathy, and it is characterized by a total disregard for the feelings of others. People with APD might act out in a violent manner. They might lie. If they break the law, let's say they get caught, they will not show any kind of remorse for what they've done. According to WebMD, APD affects about 0.6% of the population, yet it may show up in 47% of male inmates and about 21% of female inmates. So let's take a little look-see at three rather well-known sufferers of APD. Ted Bundy. So who doesn't know at least a little something about Ted? He was a necrophile who confessed to 30 murders in the 70s. Supposedly, Ted had a type, and I say supposedly for a reason. People say he preferred women with long, straight hair parted in the middle, like Stephanie Brooks, the woman who he was engaged to in 1973. Lots of people talk about this fact. They write about this fact. But Bundy himself says that this is basically a load of crap. We could argue with Ted but we're not. So Ted was an intelligent and charming man. He was handsome enough to get attention, but not so handsome that people would remember him specifically. This gave him the ability to do his dirty work out in the open. His modus operandi was to approach an intended victim in a public area, sometimes in broad daylight or crowded areas. He would often pretend that he was injured. He'd wear a splint, a cast, have crutches. If you've seen the movie Silence of the Lambs, and if you're a true crime fan, and especially serial killer fan, you have. Buffalo Bill wears a fake cast, and he lures Catherine over to his van to help him with the chair. Then he hits her over the head with the cast. I believe I read it was inspired by Bundy, and even if I hadn't read it, I would guess that that's true. Bundy, however, preferred to hit people, women, over the head with a crowbar, that he'd stashed in or under the car. All of the skulls, save one, that they found, all had signs of blunt force trauma. And all of the bodies that were recovered, save one, had been strangled. Ted confessed to decapitating at least a dozen using a hacksaw. He also kept some of them for a while before he disposed of them. APD sufferers tend to be violent. I would say bashing someone over the head could be considered a bit violent. Ted would go to visit the bodies. He would put makeup on them. He would have sex with them until they were too decomposed to do it anymore. It's quite obvious he doesn't feel any remorse because he returns to his victims and violates them over again, even in death. He has no problem keeping trophies, as in body parts. He also had photographs, but those were destroyed while he was out on bail. As for the lying, which is a trait for those diagnosed with APD, at one point, when law enforcement said they thought he had murdered 36, he is claimed to have said 
quote. Add one digit to that and you'll have it, implying his victim count was over 100. Later, though, he told his lawyer, Polly Nelson, that the 100-plus count was just speculation and that approximately 35 was probably accurate. So we have to ask ourselves, which was the lie? The 35 or the 100? I'll let you decide. Next, we're going to talk about John Wayne Gacy. For the record, there are two things that I am truly afraid of. Spiders and clowns. And we all know about Mr. Gacy and his clown getup. That means he is not my favorite serial killer. Which sounds bizarre, but if you are a true crime fan, if you are fascinated by serial killers, we all have a favorite serial killer, even if we won't admit it out loud. Mine is H.H. H. Holmes, and I will do an exhaustive look at him, but not yet. Now we're talking about Wayne. He was convicted of 33 murders, mostly teenage boys. He got the death sentence for 12 of those and natural life in prison for the rest. Casey led a double life. He was a charitable member of his community, a local contractor. He participated in local politics, and he came across a bit weird maybe, but as a real kind of stand-up guy. He did the whole clown thing for parties. The other part of his life, well, that was inflicting horrific and sadistic torture and then murder on the young men that he had lured into his home. He himself was raised in a home with an abusive alcoholic father who liked to physically and verbally assault all of his children. Despite this, Gacy desperately wanted his father's approval, even in adulthood. He failed in that endeavor. So Gacy's first brush with the law was in 68 for trying to coerce a male employee into sex acts. He pled guilty and he got 10 years. He was paroled after only 18 months. In 71, he was charged with the attempted rape of a young man. Those charges were dropped because the victim didn't show up for the hearing. In 78, Gacy draws law enforcement's attention again when Robert Peist, a teenager working at a local pharmacy, came up missing. And Gacy was the last one to see him. The police do a little background check on Gacy and they find out that he served time for sodomy against a teenage boy. So it was because of this that the police obtained a search warrant for Gacy's house. Now, if you know anything at all about Gacy, you know that he buried many of the bodies in his crawl space. One was actually buried directly beneath the front door. So as we can imagine, there would be a rather pungent odor in this house. The police noticed this rancid odor, which we know are decomposing bodies, but Gacy is a master at weaving a web of lies. And he ends up convincing the police that this is a sewage problem. I can imagine him saying something like, sorry, gents, broken sewer line. Sorry about the smell. The sad thing is you would think that law enforcement would recognize that smell. And so they didn't find a whole lot on this first search warrant. I say this now, knowing that what they did not know is that they were within feet of a mass burial site. One thing that they did take, however, was a ring. And they found out that this ring belonged to a teenager that had disappeared a year prior. Now that the police have this piece of evidence, they get themselves a second search warrant. Gacy realizes he is about to be found out, and so he confesses. 
His defense team tries to claim that Gacy was insane at the time of the murders. To me, that seems a lot like quite a few bouts of temporary insanity. And we are talking about 33 young men. So he fails at this attempt, thankfully, and is sentenced to death. Prison officials will later say that while he was eating his last meal, which was, by the way, fried chicken, french fries, Coke, and strawberry cheesecake, he was very chatty and, quote, talking up a storm. So in terms of APD, the lying part definitely holds true, and the no remorse is obviously true. If you want to dig into Gacy's crime, which I will do eventually on Crime Biscuit, you will see the horrific way he treated his victims and his utter lack of remorse once again ring true with antisocial personality disorder. And the violent acts he did to these men, very true. And on a personal note, the fact that he dressed like a clown just makes him that much scarier. Our third and final famous APD sufferer is Charles Manson. While Charlie never actually killed anyone, he was convicted using the joint responsibility rule. Simply put, everyone involved in conspiracy to commit a crime is as guilty as those who actually commit it. Charlie was an ex-convict and he had spent half of his life in prison for various infractions. Charlie also wanted to incite a race war. That was his goal. That, I believe, would qualify as antisocial, don't you? Young Charlie got caught committing burglaries and auto theft. As a youth, a caseworker even described him as antisocial. That would be shades of things to come, perhaps? I'm sure most people know about his helter-skelter obsession, which I won't go into, but he used drugs and his paranoid vision of the uprising of the black race to brainwash his family into the same way of thinking. So Charlie rips off a drug dealer named Bernard Lots of Papa Crow. Things go a bit wonky. Crow threatens to basically wipe out everyone at the ranch. On July 1st, 1969, Manson shoots Crow. He thinks he's killed him. And he thinks this is confirmed when the body of a black man identified as a Black Panther was found in Los Angeles. Crow, however, wasn't a member of the Black Panthers. But Manthan thinks that, and now that he's of that mindset, he's sure the Black Panthers are going to come for them. And I think he was actually sort of excited about it. This, in his mind, was the beginning of Helter Skelter. Also in the month of July, Manson sends three of his followers, Bobby Beausoleil, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins, to go to Gary Hinman's house, now, Gary Hinman has supposedly inherited a bunch of money. This is what Manson says. And he wants that money. That's why he sends his family members there to get the money. Well, Gary doesn't cooperate. And in return, he is held hostage for two days. Charlie shows up at some point and slashes Gary's ear with a sword. Later, Beausoleil stabs Gary to death. And the girls use Gary's blood to write political piggy on the wall, along with a Black Panther symbol. A month later in August, Beausoleil is arrested because he is driving Gary Hinman's car. Two days later, Charlie tells his family it's time for Helter Skelter. So on August 8th, he sends his faithful followers to the house where Melcher used to live, and he wanted them to, quote, 
totally destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. The people in this house are total strangers to Charlie Manson. Little side note here, I'm going to stop naming all of Manson's followers. There's too many of them. They annoy me because they're brutal killers, and this is a half biscuit. So back to the story. The people in the house were, of course, Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and her lover, Frankowski. Sharon Tate's husband, director Roman Polanski, was in London at the time. Frankowski was struck over the head several times with a gun, repeatedly stabbed, and then shot twice. I read that the gun was actually broken on him. Abigail Folger was stabbed 28 times. Frykowski, who was actually still alive and crawling across the lawn, was finished off with a flurry of stabs, bringing the final stab count to him at 51. Sharon Tate was stabbed 16 times as she pleaded for her child's life. Charlie had previously told the women of his family to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy. They left the word pig in blood on the front door. The next night, the LaBianca murders happened. Supposedly, Charlie went in and tied up Lino and Rosemarie LaBianca, then sent his crew in to finish them off. The LaBiancas had pillowcases over their heads and lamp cords tied around them to hold the pillowcases on. The lamps were still attached to the cords. Lino was stabbed with a bayonet. Rosemary, who had been taken to another room, was fighting off her two female assailants using the lamp that was still attached to the cord as a weapon. She was also stabbed with a bayonet. When one of the Manson boys returned back to where Lena was, he finished him off, and when he was done, he carved the word war on his stomach. The girls are in the back room stabbing Rosemary. They also wrote the words rise and death to pigs, on the walls, and then helter-skelter on the refrigerator. Charlie did not kill any of these people, but he instructed them to be killed. He wanted it done gruesomely. Therefore, he is responsible for it. He had no regard for human life, and the violence is just unspeakable. No regard for human life and violence are characteristics of APD. What about the remorse part? Well, 2007, MSNBC aired The Mind of Manson, which was a complete version of a 1987 interview that Manson gave at San Quentin. This footage shows an unshackled Manson who is unruly and totally unapologetic. In fact, this footage was deemed so unbelievable that they ended up only using seven minutes of it. And the lying part of APD? What about Charlie? He did claim that during the trial, he didn't tell anyone to kill anyone. Okay, Charlie. And here's your final crumb. If a strange man with a cast asks you to help him get furniture into his van, don't do it. And never, ever turn your back on a clown. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Check me out on Facebook, Crime Biscuit, colon, a true crime podcast. Rate and review, or even better, subscribe. Thanks for joining me. 
Bye.